Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and today I want to talk to you about the darkening of Valinor. The destruction of the trees. I want to talk to you about Morgoth. I want to talk to you about Ungoliant. And I want to talk a little bit about the Silmarils too, as they pertain to this story. So getting into this, um, the purpose that I have here is I just want to strictly remain to what pertains to the destruction of the trees. Because again, if I if I want to provide context for every single thing, this is going to be too long. I want this to be kind of short and sweet. So my purpose is going to be to talk about the destruction of the trees. And I'm going to also, I want to talk about Ungoliant and the lessons that we can learn from that character as well. So I'm going to start by providing the context for this situation. And I'm going to try to do that in as succinct a way as possible. So I'm going to tell you the characters that are involved, uh, what's the setting, and then we'll kick off from there. All right. So scene. We have the Noldor living happily in Valinor. Now remember, If you listen to my last podcast, Valinor is the Undying Lands. It is where the Valar live. It's where the Maiar live. It is this place where the beings that Iluvatar created that are bound to the earth that don't die stay until the ends of the earth, until Iluvatar's will is fulfilled. So this is this is our starting point, and we're going way back in time here. If you listen to my Numenor podcast, this is way back in time. We're at the beginning of the Silmarillion right now. There isn't even a sun and a moon yet. The world is lit by the two trees, Telperion and Laurelin. And Telperion and Laurelin are the trees in Valinor, and light emanates from them. And they actually, they, so kind of like night and day they switch off. So there's like a day cycle of one tree that's lit up. And then as evening comes around, the other tree lights up. And there's this kind of co-mingling, you know, around the evening of the day. But that's that's kind of how the cycle of the trees go. And they light the world. There's no sun and there's no moon. So there's that kind of physical setting. And the characters that are involved in this story here is you have the Valar, and you have the Maiar, and you have the Noldor, you have the Vanyar elves, and uh, that's pretty much it. You know, the Teleri are, are there in Valinor, that's another group of elves, but they're not really involved in the comings and goings of the major things that are happening. So that's kind of the setting, and I know that was very poorly explained, but it's it's tough to give context for everything, like I've said. So what we're going to do here is we're going to focus on the Noldor, specifically, in this story. The king of the Noldor is Finway. He's got a couple sons, but the two sons that I want you to keep in mind here are Feanor and Fingolfin. Feanor is the oldest son. However, his mother is a different mother than his younger brother, Fingolfin. And these two are going to come into play in a second, but those are the characters that I want you to kind of keep in mind. But the, the Noldor, this group of elves, are living very happily. In Valinor, everything is dandy. There's nothing to be worried about. All their needs are taken care of. And Feanor, the oldest son of Finway, who is the king of the Noldor. Finway is the king of the Noldor. And his oldest son, Feanor, is an extremely talented elf. He is very good, particularly at crafting. And he's looking at the two trees of Valinor. And they're beautiful. 
They have, they light the world. They have this light that is so intense and powerful and good, really. And he thinks that that's beautiful. And he wants to capture that light and make some kind of craft out of them. So using the light of the trees and another substance that uh, Tolkien doesn't reveal what it is, um, he creates the jewels, the Silmarils, the... (laughs) The Silmarils, where you get the word the Silmarillion from. The whole point of the book, the War of the Jewels. He makes these beautiful jewels. And they shine with the light of the trees. And it's everyone who looks upon the Silmarils are just amazed by them. Even the Valar, who Tolkien's god has given the power to create. You know, they created the the trees of Valinor. And even they are just, you know, stunned by the beauty of these jewels that Feanor has crafted, this this young elf prince. Now, one of the Valar, a name you might recognize, Melkor, who will eventually become Morgoth. Melkor looks upon these beautiful jewels that Feanor has made, and he wants them. He lusts for them. And he hates Feanor for his creativity and his craftsmanship he wants these jewels for himself now morgoth or sorry melkor is a member of this class of beings that are known as the valar and it's just to give a brief description of them they are they the most powerful beings in arda earth they went into the world were placed there by iluvatar tolkien's god to govern the world and to create things within it. So just a reminder there. One of them is named Melkor, and he is in the Undying Lands, and he wants these jewels. Now Melkor at this time is, he's kind of on probation because he's done some bad things in the past. He's responsible for the fact that there's evil in the world because he wanted to sing his own song at creation. He sowed discord into the world. So he's responsible for evil, and he's responsible for a lot of other problems as well. But he's already been punished. So he spent a lot of time on lockdown, and now he's been released, and he's essentially on probation. And he is feigning all of these good works, and and, uh, he's pretending to be a nice guy in Valinor now. He's acting like he's learned his lesson. But on the inside... He covets these Silmarils that Feanor has created. So what does Melkor do? Because we know he's going to act on his lust for the Silmarils, right? Because that's what Melkor does. So what does he do to try and get these for himself? Well, he starts by stirring up discord among the Noldor, this group of elves. He starts spreading rumors that... Fingolfin, who is the younger brother, wants to usurp Feanor's place. And not just Feanor's place, but his father's place, Finwë, on the throne of the Noldor. That Fingolfin wants to stab Feanor in the back and take rulership of the Noldor for himself. And then he goes over to other groups and he says that Feanor, the older brother has no love for Fingolfin, the younger brother, and he's going to be coming after him. Now, this all kind of comes to a head. Like, these rumors take a really long time to fester, but they eventually become a cancer. And it gets to the point where Feanor, who is the fiery older brother, he starts acting out. And he's saying, you know what? Fine. If my younger brother is coming after me, then I'll just leave. I'll leave this place. I don't need to be here 
listening to the rules of the Valar anyway. I'll go rule my own lands in Middle-earth. Because you remember, the Undying Lands are not a part of Middle-earth. They are detached. So he starts threatening to take groups of the Noldor to leave. Out loud. Out in the open. Now, Fingolfin, his younger brother, hears of this and goes to his father, Finway, and says, Hey, like, can you do something to control my older brother, please? And in that moment, when he's before his father, like, asking him to do something about Feanor, the older brother, Feanor comes in and he bursts into the throne room of his father when Fingolfin is trying to get his father to control his older brother. He bursts into the throne room and basically says, like, oh, here you are talking about me behind my back to my father. And then he draws a sword on Fingolfin. I also forgot to mention, um, during the time where Morgoth was... uh, Melkor, at this time, was spreading these rumors. The different houses of the Noldor started to make weapons for themselves because they started not to trust each other. There wasn't any need for weapons in the Undying Lands before because the Undying Lands are perfect. Everybody has what they need. So there wasn't any need for people to be crafting weapons to go to war with each other. But they have all groups of the Noldor have been making weapons in secret to turn on one another. And Feanor, the older brother, bursts open the throne room and puts a sword to his younger brother's chest and essentially tells him to get in line, like know your place. And Fingolfin, being the stoic character that he is, just kind of walks right by his brother and lets it be. But Feanor doesn't let him go. He gets back in his face again and threatens to take his life. So now you have the older prince threatening the life of the younger out in the open, in the Undying Lands, in Valinor, where this is not supposed to happen here. You're not supposed to have open threats of violence here. So this gets back to the Valar, the governors of the world, and they're really upset about this. So they demand that Feanor, you know, speak for his crimes, for what he's done, because you're not allowed to do that here. And his punishment is he gets banned from the city of Tyrion in Valinor, which is the capital city, essentially. Um, it's, it's actually in the new Rings of Power trailer. You know, when that person walks up the hill and you kind of, you get that shot of the two trees with that city right there, that is Tyrion in Valinor. And Feanor is banned from that city. He is told for um, for 12 years to go and live it at his fortress in Formidos, which is kind of, it's outside of uh, Tyrion, kind of on the outskirts of Valinor, on the outskirts of the Blessed Realm, kind of closer to where the Teleri live by the shore. And again, I know this is all stuff you need context for, but it is difficult, folks, to provide it all. Uh, Just know that Feanor is thrown out of the city and he has to remain there for 12 years. And he can come back, provided, of course, his younger brother Fingolfin agrees to forgive him for this slight. And Fingolfin, being the good character that he is, he agrees to forgive his brother. Now, one of the things that we find out over Feanor's testimony in his trial is that he was hearing lies that Melkor was perpetuating. So all of this comes to light that Melkor is the one who had been spreading discord because he wanted the Silmarils. So he was trying to figure out a way to divide the Noldor to make them less powerful for multiple reasons. I mean, he really just hated them. 
but he also wanted the Silmarils, so he wanted them divided, and he wanted strife among them. So the Valar, the rest of the Valar, because Melkor is one of the Valar, they, it, the truth comes out, and now they're like, okay, we got to find Melkor. He's, he's causing problems again, but they don't know where Melkor is. He's, he's hiding somewhere. So Feanor is banished for 12 years, and he goes back to his fortress in the north, and uh, his father, the king of the Noldor, Finway, joins him because Finway, his father, loves Feanor so much that he doesn't want to be in Tyrion while his son is not there. So he leaves his son, Fingolfin, in charge of the rest of his people, which is funny because it's as if, you know, these rumors that uh, Melkor had spread to Feanor that his his brother was coming for his his place on the throne kind of became sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy for Feanor you know because now he's banned and his father has gone with him and his younger brother is ruling the rest of their people in Tyrion so it's an interesting you know bit of flip of the script right there that Tolkien does uh, but anyway so his brother goes um, to his fortress in the north, and Melkor is there. And Melkor attempts to try and get Feanor to trust him. He goes there and he tells him that it's his punishment is unjust, and he should just leave, uh, leave Valinor, and go to Middle-earth. And Melkor tells him that he will help him establish a kingdom for himself there. And as Feanor is kind of weighing the utility of this offer that Melkor has given him, Melkor can kind of see that it's taking Feanor a while to figure this out. So he says to him, hey, you know, I know you have the Silmarils in there. With the way the Valar have treated you, do you think the Silmarils are safe in there? They'll probably take them for themselves. And it's in this moment that Melkor overplays his hand. And Feanor sees that Melkor's just trying to get him to trust him so that he can take the Silmarils for himself. It was like something that Feanor could just see in his eyes. And it's in this moment that Feanor rejects him. And, and he not only rejects him, but he also insults him. And he calls him a, um, he calls him a jail crow of Mandos, which Mandos is another member of the, the group of the Valar who was the one who had locked uh, Melkor away. And again, it always takes all... Melkor is the strongest of the Valar. However, he was not the one who was placed in charge. Manwe is the one who was placed in charge. So although Manwe is a little bit less powerful than Melkor, all of the Valar together are always able to overpower him. And when they overpowered him the first time and locked him away, he was locked uh, with Mandos. Mandos was... was keeping guard over him. So when Feanor calls him a jail crow of Mandos, he's basically like, you know, get away from me, you prisoner. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And Melkor is upset about this. You know, he doesn't take it lightly. He is extremely angry and storms off. Now, Finway, Feanor's father, the dethroned currently king of the Noldor, is there and he witnesses this conversation that his son has with Melkor and he's very troubled by it. So he sends messengers to the rest of the Valar and is like, hey, Melkor showed up here and tried to get my son to leave. You need to do something about this. So they disperse their riders, their hunters, they're looking for Melkor and they can't find him. 
Now, Manwe, who is the king of the Valar, he is the king of Arda. He is the governor that Iluvatar has placed on Earth. And even though he's, at this point, not as powerful as Melkor is, he has authority over Melkor because he was the one who was placed in charge. But yeah, they can't find him anywhere. And Manwe assumes that Melkor is going to try and escape to Middle-earth and go back to his old fortress that he had established over there. So he sends his hunters in the wrong direction. Melkor does not run to Middle-earth. He actually runs in the opposite direction. He runs south. So he goes back into the Blessed Realm and then out on the other side of the boundary into this dark land in the south. This land that's called Avathar, which in the Silmarillion, it says that this was a land where the shadows were deepest in the world. What's he going there to do? Well, he's going there. He's looking for help from somebody. Because at this point, Melkor, one, he's been exposed. So everybody knows that he's been causing problems. So he's got to do something about that. And two, he's extremely angry at Feanor and he wants those Silmarils and he's going to take them. All right. So now is where I'm really going to jump into it. Before I was just trying to give you kind of context for everything. Um, I know it's a lot and I know that you're probably confused on a lot of stuff, but oh well. (laughs) Let's move forward, everyone. So we have Melkor escaping to the south. He's in a land called Avatar, where the shadows are thickest in the world, and he's seeking help from something that can give him a little bit more strength as he's going in to seek his revenge on Feanor and take the Silmarils and escape the combined wrath of the Valar as well. And he goes and he finds this creature that used to serve him, This being is called Ungoliant, and this being is a spirit of darkness that first joined Melkor's cause before he was imprisoned the first time. Now she's kind of just off living by herself. Tolkien expresses her as the female gender, so it's some some female spirit that it, it says the elves believe that this spirit descended into the world when Melkor first looked upon uh, Manwe's kingdom with, with jealousy. Because remember, Melkor wasn't the one placed in charge of this earth that Iluvatar created. Manwe was. And Melkor looked upon that with jealousy. And he deceived a lot of other spirits, a lot of the other Maiar beings to join his cause. And not just Maiar, but other uh, spiritual beings that aren't exactly given a class. Now, Tolkien never expressly describes where exactly Ungoliant fits in the spiritual hierarchy in his legendarium. So a lot of people have different theories. My personal theory, the position I've decided to take is, I believe that Ungoliant is a physical representation of the void. She is a spirit of the void. She is a spirit of the darkness. And that's pretty much the only description that we get. You know, we don't know if Ungoliant was was a Maiar that fell. We don't know if she was a spirit that was created from the discord that Melkor had sown into the Song of the World. We don't know if she is a production of evil itself. But we do know that she is a she is a being of darkness. And after Melkor 
was imprisoned the first time and all of his servants kind of dispersed. She was one of those servants that dispersed and fled from the wrath of the Valar and is living in this dark place in the world. And I'll read from the book here. It says, In a ravine she lived and took shape as a spider of monstrous form weaving her black webs in a cleft of the mountains. There she sucked up all light that she could find and spun it forth again in dark nets of strangling gloom until no light more could come to her abode and she was famished. So what we see here is this being that used to serve Melkor, this being Ungoliant, she's taken the form of a spider and she feeds off of sources of light. And now, you know, she's living in the darkest place in the world. So at this point, she's, she's pretty hungry. She's afraid to go beyond the borders of this hiding place that she's been living in because she doesn't want to be caught by the hunters of the Valar in the Blessed Realm. So Melkor appears to her in his Dark Lord form, the form that he had taken as the tyrant of Utumno his old fortress, before he was punished the first time. And he's trying to get Ungoliant to join him in this attack that he has, this this plot to take the Silmarils, which we don't know what it is yet. We just kind of get this paragraph of them talking about it. And Melkor can see that she really is not sure. You know, she doesn't like, it didn't help me last time that I served you, so why should I do it now? And he says this to her. Do as I bid, and if thou hunger still when all is done, then I will give thee whatsoever thy lust may demand, yea, with both hands. And it says that he made this vow lightly and laughed in his heart when she accepted. So that kind of implies that obviously he had no intention of fulfilling his end of the deal and giving her whatever she wanted. But nevertheless, Ungoliant, this spirit of darkness that has taken the form of a giant spider, decides to join him. And they make off together, both of them. And I want to, I really want to break down a lot of this stuff here because I find so much of these descriptions very interesting. And it bleeds into other areas of the Legendarium as well. So I'm going to read here. It says, A cloak of darkness she wove about them when Melkor and Angoliant set forth, an unlight in which things seemed to be no more, and which eyes could not pierce, for it was void. So Angoliant has covered them in this darkness using her webs. And, you know, I want to draw a point here because do you remember... For those of you who listen to my podcast about the Balrog, right? Where this this darkness that was emanating forth from the Balrog. These evil beings in Tolkien's Legendarium, they have this description about them that's it's it's darkness but it's never just an absence of light it's it's an actual void like a black hole like nothingness is emanating from these beings. So I wanted to draw that parallel because I think that's really interesting. So Melkor in his dark form and Ungoliant, who has covered the both of them with these webs of void, take off on their journey back to the Blessed Realm. And 
Ungoliant is covering, you know, their their pace with her darkness, but there hasn't been a watch set in that part of the land because the Valar had assumed that nothing lived there. It was it was just nothingness. Like there there had been no life, and they made the mistake of assuming that. So there wasn't watches in that part of the land. So Melkor and Ungoliant make it to the border where they can now see. They're, they're overlooking the Blessed Realm. They're at the top of a mountain, and they begin to descend. Now, I'm going to jump from where they are to what is going on in Valinor right now. Currently in Valinor, there is a festival of the first fruits taking place, okay? Now, in Valinor, the land is perfect, right? So... They don't necessarily have to have these like festivals celebrating a good harvest because they're always going to have a good harvest. However, Yavanna, who is a member of the Valar, who basically handles all things that grow, she set times in Valinor for things to be planted and things to grow for them to reap the harvest. So they don't have to have a harvest, uh, but they do it anyway because Yavanna had set these times of planting reaping and celebration and at this point they are celebrating the the harvest right the valar are getting together and manway the chief of the valar he wants to celebrate the collection of the harvest he wants to have everybody get together and worship iluvatar and he also wants to use this celebration to bring feanor and fingolfin the two brothers who were beefing back together and he wants them to be reconciled. So they are having this celebration and he calls for Fanor, who is serving his band from the city to come in and enjoy the celebration. It's not really an invite though, because he demands that he be there because he really wants to see the two brothers reconcile. So everyone is celebrating. He brings Fanor and he brings Fingolfin together and he's basically like, hey, you guys make up. And they do, sort of. You know, Fingolfin, he says that, like, hey, Feanor, you are my older brother. You are going to be the one that is king of the Noldor after our father. I'm not going to challenge you on that. And Feanor gives this, like, blah answer. He's basically like, yeah, whatever. Sounds good. And they have this makeup session. And while this is going on, while people are celebrating, while Manway is trying to bring everybody together... You have Melkor and Ungoliant covered in a black shadow, just rushing down. They're descending down into the valley and charging the two trees of Valinor, Telperion and Lorelin, the trees that light the world, right as the mingling of the lights are taking place. So the, the trees would light up and uh, go out in cycles. So there was usually only one lit up at a time, but there was this time of the day where the tree's lights would co-mingle as one was dying out and the other was lighting up. And that's when this is taking place. So the two of them are lit up together and Melkor and Ungoliant come charging at the trees and Melkor takes his black spear and jabs it into both of the trees, smiting into their core to the point where their sap is coming out like like blood. And Ungoliant goes up to this shining sap. Now remember, she is a consumer of light. She is a glutton of light. She is a glutton of things that are good. And 
she comes up and she just drinks the sap and drinks it to the point where there is none left to where it's dry. And the poison, it says the poison of death that was inside of her seeped into the trees and destroyed them both. They both rotted in this moment. And everything goes dark. Because remember, this was the source of light in the world, these trees. Everything goes dark. And then at this point, Ungoliant also drinks from the wells of Varda, which was these, uh, basically these retention areas that were underneath the tree that collected the rainwater and the dew that had settled on the trees that were touched by the light of the trees. So it was this water that had kind of come off of the tree that was special because it was touched by the tree's lights. She kills the trees and then she goes over to these wells and just consumes them all. And it says that she swelled up to a size that was so vast and hideous that even Melkor who at this point, he is the most powerful being on earth. He is the most powerful being in Arda. Even he in this moment feels afraid of her. This creature that he deemed less than himself, that he was just trying to enlist the help from. He is afraid of her. But anyway, everything goes dark and they escape together under a black cloud. And at this point, everything is chaos. People are, are wailing. They, they don't understand what has happened. And again, I, I'm going to read this quote from the book because we get another example here of this, this darkness that's almost come to life. It says, The light failed. This is after Morgoth and Ngolion destroy the trees and run. It says, The light failed, but the darkness that followed was more than loss of light. In that hour was made a darkness that seemed not lack, but a thing with being of its own. For it was indeed made by malice out of light, and it had power to pierce the eye, and to enter heart and mind, and strangle the very will. So, at this point, you know, Manwe, the chief of the Valar, he's kind of looking off into the distance, and it says that, He's able to pierce the darkness to a point where he sees a dark of darkness moving quickly. Like he can, he, he can see very far, right? Uh, and he perceives that as like, okay, well, that's clearly where Melkor is. And he sends the hunters after them. But it's so dark that the hunters aren't really able to get anywhere. And it ultimately ends up being a futile mission because the hunters are are unable to operate in that level of darkness. So Melkor and Ungoliant get away out of the Blessed Realm. They flee to the north into the direction of Middle-earth. So Melkor and Ungoliant escape. And then we kind of get this scene. And I'm just going to briefly describe this because, again, I wanted to keep this episode kind of on the shorter side. Um, we kind of get this scene where... The Valar are trying to convince Feanor to give them the Silmarils. Because if you remember, the Silmarils are made from the light of the trees. And Yavanna believes that she can take the light from the Silmarils and try to create another uh, source of light like the trees. And she kind of explains, and this is where... What's interesting in this story, and, and you'll see another example of this in a second, the idea of powerful beings being taxed, 
right? Beings that are powerful in Tolkien's world, they can't just do whatever they want, right? So the creation of the trees for Yavanna originally was a very taxing activity for her. And she expresses that she can't just do the exact same thing again, right? She needs the light from the Silmarils because the power right now is just not in her to do that big project again. So that's why they're trying to convince Feanor to kind of hand them over. And Feanor basically expresses the same sentiment to her. And he's like, hey, you know, it took a lot out of me to make the Silmarils. And, you know, I can't just do that again. So they're kind of having this little debate when messengers come from Feanor's fortress in Formanos. And these messengers tell them that this great shadow passed over the land and it was Melkor. Melkor came in to the fortress at Formanos and killed Feanor and Fingolfin's father, Finway, at the gate. And then went into the inner core of the fortress and stole the Silmarils, which were in there locked up. So Melkor has done everything he set out to do at this point. He has destroyed the trees of Valinor. He has caused a huge problem for the Valar. And he's gotten his revenge on Feanor for the comment that for insulting him earlier and taken the Silmarils that he lusted for so badly. And it's at this point, going back to where Feanor is with Valar, that Feanor curses Melkor and calls him Morgoth, which means Black Foe of the World. So it's at this point that Melkor is now forever known as Morgoth to the elves. All right, now back to Morgoth. He's not Melkor anymore. So Morgoth and... Ungoliant are kind of just booking it together. They are in a region of the world right now called the Helcaraxa, which is this strip of grinding ice that at the time connected Middle-earth to the Undying Lands. And, you know, they're making their way over this, this strip of land. Try, Melkor is trying to get to his old fortress where his usual servants are. You know, his Balrogs, his orcs, his trolls. And at this point, he's like, he's feeling fear. You know, he's feeling afraid of Ungoliant because she has grown to a massive size. So he's like kind of nervous and wants to get away from Ungoliant like as fast as he can. That's why he's trying to get back to where all of his servants are. And they make it over into Middle-earth. And as it says, as they approach his fortress... Ungoliant perceives that Morgoth is trying to get away from her. She perceives that he doesn't have any intention of following through with his end of the deal. And she says this to him, and I'm going to read the quote. She says, Black heart, I have done thy bidding, but I hunger still. And he responds, What wouldst thou have more? Dost thou desire all the world for thy belly? I did not vow to give thee that. I am its lord. So he's saying like, what are you, are you going to consume the whole world? Like, look at your size. Look how big you are. I can't give you the whole world. I intend to rule the world. That's kind of like where Morgoth is coming from. And then she says, not so much, like saying, you know, not the whole world. But thou hast a great treasure from Formanos. Formanos was Feanor's fortress. I will have all that. Yea, with both hands, thou shalt give it. So, 
she's just reiterating back to him the pledge that he gave her originally that he didn't intend on following through with. And it says that at this point, Morgoth starts just pulling jewels out of his pockets that he had stolen from Feanor's treasure hoard. Because he didn't just take the Silmarils. The Silmarils were the most valuable thing that he took, but he also took a bunch of other things that Feanor and his family had created. And he just starts giving it to her. And it says, she devoured them, and their beauty perished from the world. It says, huger and darker yet grew on Goliant, but her lust was unsated. And then she said, with one hand thou givest, with the left only, open thy right hand. Because Morgoth had just been handing her things with his left hand, because his right hand held the box that held the Silmarils. And it says that at this point, the Silmarils start to burn Morgoth's hand. And it's giving him an intense pain. And that's because those Silmarils were blessed by the Valar because they have the light of the trees in them. And they were blessed so that if anyone who was evil touched them, would it would just be a great pain to them. So at this point, Morgoth is feeling an intense burn on his hand. And he said, he says to Ungoliant, Thou hast had thy due, for with my power that I put into thee thy work was accomplished. I need thee no more. These things thou shalt not have, not see. I name them unto myself forever. So he says, no, you can't have the the Silmarils. And then it says, but. So Morgoth has just rejected her. He said, no, like you can't have what's in my right hand. I won't give it to you. These are mine. And then it says, but Ungoliant had grown great and he less by the power that had gone out of him. And she rose against him, and her cloud closed about him, and she enmeshed him in a web of clinging thongs to strangle him. So, interesting point here. We have this other example of one of the Valar, a powerful being, taxed at this point. Like, he is not as strong in this moment because his energy has gone out of him. So, you know, Tolkien uses this a lot in his writings. Like these these beings that have power, they don't just have infinite amounts of it. You know, acts of strength are taxing on these beings. And in this moment, he is temporarily weaker than Ungoliant. And, you know, she enmeshes him in this in this web and traps him. And then it says, Then Morgoth sent forth a terrible cry that echoed in the mountains. Therefore, that regent was called Lamoth, for the echoes of his voice dwelt there ever after, so that any who cried aloud in the land awoke them, and all the waste between the hills and the sea was filled with a clamor as of voices in anguish. So here we have Ungoliant, like she's got the big bad Morgoth of Tolkien's universe. She's got him strapped down. He's not going anywhere, and she's about to kill him and take the Silmarils for herself. But it says that the cry of Morgoth was so loud that it was heard by Morgoth's Balrogs in Angban. And it says, far beneath the ruined halls of Angban, in vaults to which the Valar, in the haste of their assault, had not descended. So... These were, you know, these Balrogs were hiding in, like, far underground under Morgoth's old fortress, just waiting for him to come back. And it says, 
They swiftly arose, and passing over Hithlam, they came to the place where Morgoth and Angoliant were, as a tempest of fire. With their whips of flame, they smote asunder the webs of Angoliant, and she quailed and turned to flight. And it says that she belched out black vapors to cover her exit. And fleeing from the north, she went down into Beleriand and dwelt beneath Ered Gorgoroth, which is, it becomes this, this plain that is a presence in the rest of the Silmarillion. And it says, in that dark valley that was called after, I'm not even going to try to pronounce that, it's Nangungorthep, the valley of dreadful death, because of the horror that she bred there. For other foul creatures of spider form had dwelt there since the days of the delving of Angban, and she mated with them and devoured them. And even after Ungoliant herself departed and went whither she would into the forgotten south of the world, her offspring abode there and wove their hideous webs. Of the fate of Ungoliant, no tale tells. Yet some have said that she ended long ago, when in her uttermost famine, she devoured herself at last. Sorry, everybody, that was a really long read, but I wanted you to get that last piece there because as I wrap this up, and again, I know this was this was just a quick one because that's what I wanted it to be. Um, I want to talk about the lesson that we learn from Ungoliant's character because it's so interesting. It is a different... There are villains in Tolkien's world. People complain about... Tolkien's villains not having enough depth. That's not true. Saruman has his own kind of villainy. Sauron has his. Morgoth has another. Ungoliant has a different kind of villainy. She is not... She doesn't lust for the same kind of evil that other evil characters have in, in Tolkien's universe. She... Her evil is gluttony. Her evil is... This never-ending greed and desire to consume. You know, she's a different kind of evil. She wants the Silmarils not because they're beautiful or because they have power. She wants the Silmarils because she has an insatiable hunger. And it says that this character has this up up to the point of where she even consumes herself. And I know it says in the book, some say... She ended up consuming herself. But most of the time in the legendarium, when it says, some say, or the stories tell, it's Tolkien's way of saying, like, this happened. Because it's supposed to sound like a history book. They're supposed to sound like these legends and myths that are passed down. And that's why Tolkien uses that verbiage there. But, you know, I'm taking this for fact when I read it. Some people don't. You know, some people say that, oh, you know, we... You never really know what happens to a character. No, I believe that that is Tolkien writing this as fact, that that is the philosophical endpoint of this character of Ungoliant. And, you know, I think it's important for us to draw this important lesson from this character. You know, she wasn't, she wasn't out to dominate anyone. She wasn't out to take over the world, you know, like Sauron wants to do in the Third Age and in the Second she is out to consume, out to be a glutton. Her evil is one that we see that permeates the culture that we live in. This consuming culture that we live in is starved of moderation. And that was very much Ungoliant's character, starved of moderation and starved all the time because she would never stop 
consuming. And yeah, I think that that's, it's a different kind of evil that's portrayed there. And that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to get into this story. Um, so yeah, you know, I'm going to wrap it up there. The story doesn't end there, obviously, and I left a bunch of stuff out, but I really just wanted to kind of have a pinpoint focus on the things I wanted to go over in this podcast. I hope you guys liked it. You know, feel free to give me some feedback. I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening.